Content trigger warning. Please be advised that today's episode discusses suicide and suicidal ideation. If you are having thoughts of suicide, feeling suicidal, or have concerns that someone you know may be at risk of suicide, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988 or text HOME to 741-741 to reach a crisis counselor. You are not alone. Welcome. My name is Cindy Lopez, the host of this CHC podcast, Voices of Compassion. We hope you find a little courage, feel connected, and experience compassion every time you listen. For our youth ages 10 to 24, suicide is the second leading cause of death in the U.S. It's complicated and tragic, and it's often preventable. So just knowing the warning signs for suicide can possibly help save lives. Listen to today's podcast episode where you will learn about risk factors, warning signs, and protective factors as we talk with expert Jennifer Lidecker, who works every day with teens in our RISE Intensive Outpatient Program. Welcome, Jen. Good morning. I'm excited to be here again. I'm the RISE IOP Program Manager, and so the idea of talking about suicide is something that I do pretty consistently in my role, both in terms of talking with families when they're kind of post-crisis and then also supporting families in terms of treatment and finding the right level of treatment for their teens. And then also a parent of a a couple kids and one that is starting to ask questions. And so as a parent, having these kind of conversations around suicide or mental health is also something that I'm trying to balance. Thanks so much, Jen, for being here. So Jen just referenced the RISE IOP. It's RISE, R-I-S-E. IOP is Intensive Outpatient Program, and that's here at CHC that we do in collaboration with Stanford. So that's a program for teens with suicidal ideation, self-harm behaviors, and it includes teaching kids and families, parents skills like DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. And if you're interested in learning more about that, we have other podcasts on that topic as well. So as we think about this topic of suicide prevention, for most of us, I think the topic of suicide feels kind of uncomfortable and difficult to talk about. So why do you think that is? And then what's your advice about how we talk about it? I think in talking with parents, over the years, when they learn that their teen is thinking of suicide or they've made a suicide attempt, the piece that I think is a really disconnect is the idea that we can hurt ourselves. And so there's a lot of fear in that because I think as parents, we also have this kind of protective bubble of trying to prevent our children from being hurt. And so the idea that we can hurt ourselves and be in that kind of level of suffering is really difficult. And I think with the stigma around suicide, there's definitely the idea of like, if we don't talk about it, it's not really there when the opposite is actually the most effective strategy, which is offering to have the conversation and putting it out there and naming it sometimes in those big events in a way that is safe and effective in terms of the conversation. So you just mentioned naming it. What would that talk be like? There are pros and cons to this or pluses and minuses around the idea of like media. So both social media and then like shows and things 
suicide is definitely a topic that is openly discussed and kind of presented. And so when those moments come up, sometimes it does help to just kind of broach the subject Mm. around like, when you see that, how does that look for you? Or when you hear things about teens dying by suicide, what is your response? Or do you know anybody that has suicidal thoughts? And I think the other piece that is hard is outside of those moments, we have to be careful of our response as parents, because our teens are always listening, even though we think they're not paying Mm -hmm. attention to us and that Mm -hmm. we are not on their radar. They're paying attention. And so when something comes up on a show or like the news or there's something that's in the community, our response to that, they're going to key into. And so even in those moments where we're responding authentically to an event of like talking about suicide at school or something that comes up in a TV show, kind of sitting with it for a minute and then making a comment that is like neutral or just curious around how that impacts the teen. So the language we use around suicide is important. What is the terminology that we should be using? So when teens are are having suicidal thoughts, that's kind of just thinking of dying and then Attempting suicide or making a suicide attempt or planning an attempt is kind of the next level for us. And then if there is a completed act, then we talk about the person dying by suicide. So the issue before was around committing suicide. And so that language has kind of been removed from our vernacular in terms of mental health. And so it's really that's how they died. In the same way we would use that to reference, they died by some sort of medical condition Mm -hmm. because we do kind of use that parallel that mental health, there is a medical component to that. And so really not separating the two, but recognizing that together. So why does a person consider suicide and are there usually existing mental health conditions or not? I think sometimes there are, and they might be kind of at a a lower level. The latest statistic is like 60% of teens report actively having some sort of suicidal thoughts. And so it's something that most teens especially are experiencing. Sometimes it's passive where it's like, I just want to die. I don't want to be here anymore. Like this is really hard And then that goes all the way up to really actively planning and considering suicide. And I think it's there. We don't always know why it's there. Sometimes things are really hard. So you have kind of this low period where things are really difficult, where the anxiety is so high that it makes them really uncomfortable. And the only thing that they see as an out is just not waking up. And so I think just in terms of other things, Mental health is a shade of gray sometimes, so it doesn't have to be this really big crisis. It does have to be addressed. And so doing that in a way that holds both things at the same time, right? Mm. recognizing there's these suicidal thoughts happening and also the factors that are contributing to that around different like low-level mental health stuff sometimes too. Listening to this episode, I might be thinking, what should I be looking for? What are the warning signs? For suicide? One of the key factors that we consider quite often with our teens is knowing somebody that's died by suicide or like in proximity. 
And then in conjunction with that, also things like depression, anxiety that's interfering with day-to-day. Sometimes parents will hear teens say like, I just want to die. Like, this is horrible. Mm. I just want to die. And the perspective is sometimes like they're being hyperbolic when actually key into that because that means that there's some level of suffering. And so really holding in that moment of like, okay, something's going on and opening the door to conversations about that. Mm -hmm. And so both the idea of like mental health stuff is definitely a risk factor that we look at. And then also other things where there aren't protective factors. So do they have somebody that they're talking to or are they really isolated and not engaging? Sometimes our teens experience like a really big dip in their grades where they just can't anymore. So academics becomes really, really difficult. And right in the Bay Area, especially there's this pressure to be these really incredible students, really well-rounded all of these expectations. And so in that moment, sometimes they just can't anymore. It's too much. I've read that the rate of suicide and suicide attempts increased during adolescence and that's the population you're working with. So why is that? I think the key factor for adolescents is developmentally, there's so much going on for them in terms of both like socially, intellectually, in terms of their family system, right? There's this big push pull at that point in time to formulate their identity, to really seek social connections and really look towards the life outside of their family unit. And so we do see that where the teen is trying to make those connections, it's not working the way they want or things are difficult and academics is hard. And then you also have puberty hitting. And so there are all of these multiple factors. And so I think in adolescence, it almost feels like the perfect storm sometimes Mm -hmm. in terms of there's so many directions they can go. And then they also don't have the skills sometimes to navigate those things. And so that piece, I think, really comes into play around when we see mental health get harder for them. So then my mind jumps to risk factors. We talked a little bit about warning signs. So what are the risk factors for suicide in children and teens? And I've also read that there is a risk assessment that can be done. Like when is it appropriate to use that? When would parents want to request that or be seeing it? I think the piece for us is anytime a teen mentions suicide or anytime As a parent, you kind of notice that something is a little off or different. Sometimes a teen is willing to talk with a parent. Other times it's more about reaching out to the community to seek support. A school-based counselor, therapist, I think are all really great resources. And if there's a really high concern, then you go get a risk assessment at the emergency department or at like Uplift, where now the really great thing is using 988 the mental health crisis line in your community and being able to have someone come and assess that's trained in risk assessment. In RISE, where I spend time with the teens, we risk assess every time we see them. Mm. And so for us, asking those questions, I think, about where they're at, what they're thinking about, and having somebody that's comfortable asking those questions is also really important. We are direct and to the point, which really removes kind of that stigma that we had talked about earlier in asking 
about what their thoughts are, starting from like, I call them like the little bubble thoughts that sometimes just peek up like in the middle of the day where something's hard and it's like, oh, I wish I could just go to sleep and not wake up kind of a thing to like, I'm really thinking and considering about how I want to do this. And so as a parent, it's hard to have those conversations and not allow your emotion to be involved. And so this is a place where I think reaching out to the professionals is really important and getting a sense of like, okay, which direction do we need to go? Yeah. And to our listeners, you can contact us at chconline.org. You can contact our care team, care team at chconline.org. They can set you up with a free 30-minute parent consultation just to advise you and guide you about next steps. That might be a place to start. I also wonder, does substance abuse play into these risk factors at all or not? It can. Yes. I think with substance use, sometimes there's kind of that recreational side to it. And then there's also the piece where we do see teens that use it to self-medicate. So they're using things like cannabis to kind of regulate their own anxiety. And it definitely doesn't work the way that they are hoping it does, right? There's kind of that band-aid effect where the wound is still there and it's just kind of covering it up. And so that kind of overlap between the two can definitely make someone that's already suffering worse when they are sometimes sober versus using. And then other times there is the effect of like increasing impulsivity when they're under the influence. And so you do have sometimes that kind of overlap Mm. of teens who are already suicidal and then they're using and that increases their suicidality where they may choose to act in a moment where if they were not using, they could logically kind of think through or have something where Mm -hmm. they can use as a reason not to act. So from what I'm hearing, substance use doesn't mean that they're automatically at risk for suicide or even mental health issues, right? Yeah, it depends. But it does play into it. So let's talk for a minute about protective factors. It's not just teens who are dealing with suicidal thought or attempts, but children do too. Are there protective factors against suicide or suicide attempts? Yes. So one of the big protective factors is having access to mental health supports, which is what we've seen both in terms of the number of therapists and providers in the Bay Area are pretty significant in response to the deaths by suicide that we had seen historically in the community of adolescents. And then also the schools really ramped up their mental health supports on campus Mm. in the last, I think, 10 to 15 years, right? So really making it much more accessible, I think, is, is a really key protective factor in terms of they can go in and talk to anyone We also have a lot of teens that use like the crisis text lines or Mm. the Trevor Project is one that a lot of our teens use where they'll reach out and talk to a counselor on the phone and they don't know this person. They just know that they're a safe place to talk through what they're needing in that moment. The other piece is having like another trusted adult. It doesn't have to be a mental health based worker. It can be a coach. It can be a mentor. It can be a teacher that they really connect with at school. And that's a protective factor as Mm -hmm. well. And then having something that drives them. So something even in those dark moments 
we call it like a, a life worth living goal or reason for mm. living. So what are the things that really keep them going? And so sometimes that's like, I want to do this very specific career when I get older, or I can't imagine leaving my cat, right? So sometimes our animals are one of our biggest protective factors. And then family is also a big piece for a lot of our teens. And so those ones we focus on. And then the other big protective factor that we've found is that if they can problem solve on their own, even when they're having a really hard time, if they can see some sort of light at the end of the tunnel, that is really helpful. And so some of the skills that we talk about in DBT and RISE is like just getting through this moment to like tolerate this. So then you can see that light at the end of the tunnel and be able to work through what's happening. And so the other side, right, is where everything is dark. And nothing Mm. seems like it's going their way. But for us, really working on that problem solving is a really key factor that we take into consideration. CHC's Voices of Compassion podcast is made possible by the generosity of people like you. To learn more about supporting CHC, go to chconline.org slash donate. Also, make sure to follow us on social media for more inspiring and educational content from CHC. Being an educator, I always think early intervention, right? I'm wondering what would early intervention look like for parents and kids as they think about this idea of suicide prevention? I think having conversations about our emotions, so opening the door to talk about when we're sad or when we're angry and really using emotional vocabulary, I think is really a big piece. So building early on the idea of talking about your emotions and being heard and having those emotions validated in a way where you feel like as a a growing child, somebody understands you and can speak your language. And so I think having those conversations really early on is important to give them the vocabulary and to also talk through, like, if you don't feel like you can talk to me, it's okay to talk to your teacher. It's okay to talk to your counselor at school or whomever that you need to talk to. So allowing for them to share when things don't go their way. And I think the really key piece that we found is as parents, we jump in to fix Mm. because we want to end whatever suffering, small or big, that the child is experiencing. And it's really about sitting with them in the moment and experiencing that emotion with them in a way that's validating. You can make that connection with them. And also in some ways, co-regulating with them. So showing them in those moments, this is how we can calm down. Not telling them, but really showing them like we're going to sit and we're going to watch the clouds. Small things like that can really give them those skills that then they can pull on when they're not sitting with anybody and they're noticing that they're starting to get really ramped up can be really helpful early on. One of my four-year-olds, I have four-year-old twins and he feels all the feels (laughs) is what we've kind (laughs) of tagged it as. And so sometimes we just sit and we take our deep breaths together. We don't Mm -hmm. talk about anything for a minute until we get to that place of like, okay, I can have a conversation Mm -hmm. with you around what just happened. It's so interesting too, because I think, especially as kids get older, but even younger children can pick up on parents' emotions. 
And so if there's something going on, they may feel like they don't want to talk to their parents because it's going to add to their parents' anxiety, worry. Is that accurate? Yes. I would say that comes up sometimes. It's like, well, I didn't see anything because I didn't want to worry anybody. And our kind of challenge to that is we are worried and we're rightly worried, right? You're in a lot of pain. You're suffering. You've been doing this alone and we don't want you to do this alone. And so I think the idea is as human beings, we emote like that's where we start from in a lot of our connection with other people Mm -hmm. is our emotional response to them and the events that are happening. And sometimes we are effective at holding that and making it look like, okay, kind of like the duck on the water, right? The top of the duck, super still underneath that those feet are kicking super fast. And so I think in those moments, even if we feel like we are keeping it together, our kids are paying attention and they do see those things. And so talking with them of like, yes, this is happening and I have time for you. Mm -hmm. And so we talk about like, sometimes we invalidate as parents and we don't mean to because there's thousands of things as a parent, as an adult that we have running through our brain. And so in that moment, our teen may come to us and we may miss the mark. And it is totally okay to come back to them after and say, you know what? I realized you needed me. And so let's sit down. Let's talk about it. And I missed it. And so I'm noticing I want to give you space. So I'm going to sit here. I'm going to listen. Sometimes that conversation is better to have in the car. Or like on the couch where you're sitting next to each other, but you're not like face to face. Mm -hmm. So those kind of like informal going for a walk where you can just talk. And sometimes it's just as parents listening. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that idea that some kids feel like they have to hold their parents' worry or their parents' fear or their parents' anxiety, everything you just said can help parents kind of negate that for their child, right? And I really like what you just said too about parents coming back and saying, I missed that or I messed this up. I want to talk about this. I think that those do-overs are good for everyone. So what can parents do if they believe their child is at risk for suicide or their child's having suicidal thought? I think opening the door with the teen. And so we use the term like non-judgmentally or like being really compassionate in terms of like, I'm noticing this is happening. I'm noticing like school has gotten a little bit more difficult for you or these things are going on and seeing where it lands. I think sometimes too, as parents, we might have a lot of anxiety because we're noticing things and our brain will sometimes put pieces together and really kind of catastrophize and go to the nth degree. And so sometimes talking that through with somebody first, right, the 30-minute consult at CHC that you talked about, or even talking with a school counselor if you're comfortable going and asking questions and talking through okay, how do I have this conversation and playing it out ahead of time? Because sometimes we only get like one and a half shots at doing this with our teams. And so trying to be the most effective at the start. And then I think also saying like, I'm willing to do what you need me to do. So if I'm not the person, can I really try hard to find you a person that you can talk to? Yeah, It's not one of your friends. 
Because that's the hard part. Like our teens, they are incredible peer supports to one another sometimes. And there are really great things that they do for each other as friends. And then sometimes they are in the mud with their friend and it's really heavy. And then sometimes teens will say no. And so we talk with parents at that point of, you know what, you can find someone for you to help you support the teen. So resources for families that are in the middle of this kind of crisis are really Mm -hmm. important. I think most people would get, okay, if this is how my child is verbalizing suicidal thought, they're attempting suicide. It seems like that's obvious, like call 911, go to the ER, right? Mm -hmm. But what happens after that? How do they follow up? It seems like there is a little bit of a gap between that point at which suicide attempt occurs because that's just a point in time, right? So Mm -hmm. then what happens after that is really important. What are the resources for parents who are in that situation? So sometimes the inpatient unit that the teen lands in post-hospitalization, if they are concerned about safety or the emergency department, they will provide some resources and sometimes they'll help you land in a place. So like we get referral packets pretty consistently from different places for teens that they're recommending come to us and rise. In the Bay Area, there are so many teen-based therapists that have access at CHC. We have our own set of really skilled and incredible therapists that work with teens. And we also have a wide resource library of providers in different parts of the Bay Area that we sometimes connect families with to help them. Reaching out to your pediatrician also is a a key piece because sometimes within your insurance network, they're able to help support you in connecting with a provider because it is a lot of legwork sometimes to find a program or to find a provider. And so your pediatrician's office can sometimes support with that, but then also your insurance company, if that's the direction you want to go, can really help. And so I think those are the places. And then your school. I think because professionally, I grew up in a school. And so for me, being a previous school-based counselor, I think your school is an incredible resource because your child is spending a significant portion of their day there. And so going in and talking with the school, seeing how the school can support the teen on site opening the door around starting to meet with a counselor, if it's a 504 plan to really help support them in terms of academics and reducing some of the stress, or if it's something that needs a higher level like an IEP, the school is really there to provide support for the teens. Sometimes we think like school is academic, home is different, but with mental health, it's 24 hours a day. And so having that as a resource is also, I think, a really key factor. Those resources, I think, are really important for parents who are in the thick of it. I have had friends of mine who are parents who have been in that position, and they're so thankful for the resources they've been able to find. I really appreciate all the ideas you had, your school, reaching out to your pediatrician. Lots of times, as you noted, the ED or the ER has referrals. We've referenced a few things too. We've talked about DBT a couple of times, dialectical behavioral therapy. That's an approach to counseling and therapy that really teaches kids skills and even parents skills about communicating with each other. And that's really important. And again, you can find some of that information in our podcast and our resource library at CHC. So Jen, as we wrap up, 
I'm wondering what final advice do you have for parents who are worried about their kids right now? One piece that I share with parents is sometimes you need to take a deep breath and ask the really hard questions of your teen. I think dancing around subjects because of our discomfort or the teen's discomfort doesn't allow for change. And so if we really notice that something's going on, if they're struggling in one direction or the other, really kind of taking that deep breath calming your nerves a little bit, and then asking them directly in a way that's not accusatory or judgmental, but just with compassion, coming to them, I'm concerned, I'm noticing these things. Like, are you thinking of suicide? And it's what we talked about at the start, that worry, that stigma that goes with mental health and with suicides specifically. The more we talk about it, the less stigma there is. Thank you, Jen, so much for spending your time with us on this really important topic. And to our listeners, thank you for listening in. And if you want to reach out and you need some help, chconline.org, you can reach out to our care team, careteam at chconline.org, or call us 650-688-3625. Thanks again. And to our listeners, we'll hope you'll join us again next time. Visit us online at podcast.chconline.org. Make sure to subscribe to Voices of Compassion so you never miss an episode, and we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review. Have a question? Send us an email or voice memo at podcasts at chconline.org. We're here for you when you need us.